Pastor, we're going to make it through the whole chapter. But, but don't panic because you're going to see a bunch of names and a bunch of numbers. Well, we're not going to read all those tonight. You can go back and read those later if you'd like to. But just for time's sake, it's kind of a, it's kind of a tough read reading through, through some of that. That's, that's, that's a genealogical record of, of those who had come back to Jerusalem after the exile. We'll talk more about that when we get there. Nehemiah chapter 7. Nehemiah and the people had finally completed the wall and everything was going pretty good. They had faced a lot of opposition along the way, but they were finally able to complete their task. And, and, and it was time for, for more people to begin to make their way back to Jerusalem. Now, a lot of people had made their way into Jerusalem at this point, uh, as we will see as we continue to read. But when we look at the book of, of Nehemiah, it's also good for us to consider the book of Ezra as well because these things all occurred about the same time. The things of the book of Ezra occurred before the book of Nehemiah, and, and at one time it is most likely that Ezra and Nehemiah were just one book that covered all of these events, and it was probably uh, put together by Ezra. Now, when God's people were led out of captivity by the Persians after they had been conquered by the Babylonians, they made their way back to Jerusalem, and Zerubbabel is the one that brought them back into Jerusalem, and we see that in the book of Ezra. And when Zerubbabel brings the people back into Jerusalem, they rebuild the temple. The temple had been destroyed some 70 years, give or take a few years, before that point when the Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem. So Zerubbabel and Joshua came in and along with a lot of other uh, people and they began to rebuild the temple. Well, from the beginning of the book of Ezra to the end of the book of Ezra, right kind of in the middle of the book, there's about a 60-year gap, a 60-year a span that the book of Ezra doesn't cover, but coincidentally, that's the same time period that the book of Esther took place. And so Ezra, Esther, Nehemiah, uh, all of those books happened around the same time. So we have the people moving back into Jerusalem and building the temple. Then there's a long gap uh, in, in the middle of the book of Ezra as far as time goes. And then toward the end of the book, we see that Ezra comes into Jerusalem and they begin to uh, get things back on track. And not long after that, Nehemiah comes into Jerusalem and they begin to build the walls. And so that's a little bit of a, of a time frame and a little bit of history as to what's been going on up to this point. And so uh, when we start in Nehemiah 7, we see that the wall has now been completed and the temple had previously been completed. So God has restored his people to the land. He had he had told them he was going to do that. He told them they were going to re rebuild the temple. And indeed, those things have come true. Those prophecies that we see, Zechariah and Haggai and Malachi, those prophecies that we see uh, toward the end of the Old Testament were prophecies that God gave and said, hey, I'm going to restore you to the land. You're going to rebuild the temple. And lo and behold, no surprise, exactly as God had, had told them and prophesied was the case. And so they came back in, they rebuilt the temple, and they rebuilt the wall. So let's pray. And then we will read Nehemiah 7. God, we come to you. We thank you for your good word. And God, I pray that you just keep me humble tonight as I preach. I pray that you hide me behind the cross. Help your words to do a mighty work in our life. Help us to kind of make sense of some of these things we see tonight that may not make sense to, them, dear, to us, dear Lord. But 
but help us to draw closer to you anyway and not, not get too carried away with things that, that we don't understand, God, but that we just trust you in the truths that we do. And I pray that you give us a good night tonight, and I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Nehemiah 7, verse 1. When the wall had been rebuilt and I had the doors installed, the gatekeepers, singers, and Levites were appointed. Now, when we, when, we, when we talk about the doors being installed, we saw previously that when the wall was finished, that not quite everything was finished. The doors, the gates, and things had to, had to be redone. And here we see that taking place at the beginning of this chapter. And also we see that the Levites were appointed. Now, the Levites were the tribe from which the priests came. And so likely when it says the Levites there, it's probably speaking of reinstating the, the priestly things and the things that the priests had to do. And so they're getting back to a, to a sense of, of normalcy, to what things used to be like all those years ago when they were taken into captivity. Uh, they used to have the temple that they could worship in, and they had the priests that would, that would offer the sacrifices and do the things the priests did. Well, all that stopped when the temple was destroyed. But now the temple has been rebuilt, and so the priesthood must be reestablished, and that's what we see beginning to take place here in Nehemiah 7. Then I put my brother... Hanani in charge of Jerusalem, along with Hananiah, commander of the fortress, because he was a faithful man who feared God more than most. So here we see Nehemiah uh, giving up some of his power. He had been in charge. He had been the guy throughout this process. He had come back in, and he had led the people, and he had rallied the troops, and he had encouraged them, and he stood against the enemies. But now that the wall is complete... He's done what God has sent him there to do, uh, to rebuild the wall and to see that the, the city was protected. And that has, that has occurred. And so Nehemiah is passing the torch here from his leadership role to these others who were faithful men of God. And he said to them in verse 3, Do not open the gates of Jerusalem until the sun is hot, and let the doors be shut and securely fastened while the guards are on duty. Station the citizens of Jerusalem as guards some at their posts, and some at their homes. So he gives them instructions. Don't open the gates too early. Why? Because there may be enemies sitting outside. If it's still dark, if it's just barely daylight and you open the gates, the enemies may come in. Those gates were there for security. They were to keep you safe. They were to keep evil out. And so Nehemiah, knowing that there was still, there was still a possibility of enemies being in the land, he tells them to wait a little later in the day till they open the gates. He says, do not do it until the sun is hot. Now, how long does it take for the sun to get hot? Well, not when the sun first comes up. Uh, you may would say 9, 10 o'clock, it really begins to get hot. Once the sun is up good over the trees, uh, things begin to get hot. And so at whatever time that occurred, then they were to open the gates. Later into the day when everything was visible and they could see that there were no enemies. And then he tells them, uh, and, and let the doors be shut and securely fastened while the guards are on duty. Uh, most likely he means at night. The guards would be patrolling and on duty at night, and that's when you close the gates. If the gates are going to be opened when the sun comes up, then that means they have to be closed at some point in time. So make sure that the gates are secure when you lock them down, and don't open them up too early so that the people here will be protected. And there won't be any evil that will come in, and everything will be good. And not only the guards, but stationed citizens of Jerusalem as guards, some at their post and some at their homes. And so 
there would be people uh, guarding the city, not just around the gates or the perimeter of the wall, but also in the homes scattered throughout the city. And so there were still problems. They were still in danger. They still had enemies in the area, but things were looking good because of God's power, they had be rebuilt the wall. They got the doors up and things were going good. God had been with them, but they still had to be on guard against their enemies. And perhaps that's a good, a good thing for us to consider. Is God is good to us many times and he takes care of us and he restores us in the same way that he restored the people to Jerusalem. But even when things are going good, we need to be on guard. Maybe even more so when things are going good. Because when things are not going good, we kind of are more alert and we're more aware and we're more in tune to seeking the Lord. But when things are going really good, perhaps we're not that alert. And that's when the enemy gets an opportunity to, to slip in and destroy good that God wants to work in our life. And so we have to be aware that even when things are good, we still got to be on lookout for the enemy. And that's what Nehemiah is telling the people here as he's putting others in charge and telling them what they need to do. All right, verse four. The city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it and no houses had been built yet. Then my God put it into my mind to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people to be registered by genealogy. I found the geneal genealogical record of those who came back first, and I found the following written in it. Okay, so the city was large, the walls were completed, and the temple was completed, but he says that there were few people in it. But there were quite there were quite a large amount. You could say, some would say, that the amount of people who were there were a pretty large group of people. Now, these verses that we're about to read and see that cover all these different folks and how many of them came back is almost identical to the list that we see in the book of Ezra in Ezra chapter 2. And it sounds to me as though Nehemiah is simply reading this list because he says in this passage... He says, uh, I found the genealogical record of those who came back first. Well, he's speaking about those of Ezra. It doesn't sound necessarily as though he's writing a new genealogical record here. He's simply saying, hey, here's what I found. Here's the record I found of the people who came back first. Now, it's possible that he could be updating this record, or it's possible he just is simply reiterating the record that was taken uh, at the time of Ezra in Ezra chapter 2. And so we'll read a few verses, but we won't, won't go through all of these numbers in great detail. These are the people of the province who went up among the captive exiles deported by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Each of them returned to Jerusalem and Judah, to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Remiah, Nehemiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispereth, Bigba, Naham, and Banam. The number of the Israelite men included. And then it goes on to, to speak of, of all of these people that came back first in the book of Ezra, or at least it appears that that is the case. Now, there's a long list of names of folks, and there's a lot of numbers there. If you go back and read Ezra chapter 2, and you compare it to Nehemiah chapter 7, you will see that there are some differences in that list. Now, this is the kind of thing that, that those who want to disprove the Bible will often turn to and say that, well, the Bible is, is contradictory. Now, I will be honest with you. I haven't come up with a good answer 
as to why these numbers are so different and a few of the names are different in the way they are. It is believed that Ezra is the one who compiled both the book of Ezra and the events that occurred and the events of Nehemiah. If the same person is making the book, then it seems like that they would have noticed those numbers were different. And so there's a couple of ways that we can take differences like this. Some of these numbers are exactly the same. Uh, the majority of them are exactly the same. But some of them are different. And there's, there's quite significant differences in some of them. So one possibility is that the list of Ezra was made before the, the exiles left for Jerusalem and that when they actually got to Jerusalem, those numbers had changed. And so the account in Ezra is covering the group that they thought were coming to Jerusalem and the book of Nehemiah is covering the group that actually came to Jerusalem. Well, that's a possibility, but the only real issue with that possibility is that these two, two, two events occurred a long time apart, like, like 80, 90 years apart. And so what's the likelihood that over a 90-year span that, that almost all of these numbers remained exactly the same, including people who would have died and people who would have been born. Now, it's certainly possible that that could be the case, but that seems kind of unlikely too, that, that the majority of these numbers, counting people who died and lived, would somehow still equal almost exactly the same thing. And so there's no real good answer as to why these numbers differ. Uh, it could be that there were simply scribal areas, uh, errors in copying the numbers. That, that, that what, whenever the numbers were copied originally, those from the book of Ezra, they were one set of numbers. And as the scribes uh, recopied those numbers, that perhaps some numbers changed. Uh, now, when we look at some of these numbers, we say, man, well, this number's way different than that number. Well, that's because we're looking at them in, in, in our English numbers, the way we understand numbers. But the way numbers are written in different languages, uh, it may be one little dot or one little line that, that looks very similar to a different number, which changes it to a completely different number. And so we have to acknowledge that there are differences here. We cannot ignore the fact that there are differences in these numbers. As to why these numbers are different, I really don't know the answer to that. Now, as we, as we read through uh, all of these different numbers through this list, when we, when we come down uh, to verse 61, we see kind of a, a change in, in the language that's talked about here. So, so these people would have come from Babylonian captivity. They would have come back into Jerusalem when the temple was rebuilt. And, and ever how these numbers have been decided upon, they're close enough that we can say, okay, this, this, this is not that far off as to why these numbers changed. Uh, it's, it's really hard to know, but I don't think a difference in number in this instance uh, in any way disproves what Scripture says. There are certainly some areas in, in Scripture where things are different, and they don't match up even though they cover the same event. But, but those things are so few and far between that we can ascribe most of those things to scribal errors throughout the years. Because when we, when we talk about the Bible being translated, we, it's not like we have the original letters that Paul wrote or the original writings that Moses wrote. We have copies of copies of copies that's been copied hundreds of times. And so sometimes humans do make errors. And that may be some reason why some of these things 
different. But we won't, we won't get caught up too much in that tonight, but I didn't want to not acknowledge those differences because you will notice them when you read Ezra 2 and Nehemiah 7. But I'd encourage you to research that, and there are lots of, there are lots of good explanations as to what could be the cause, but I haven't found any that have really been satisfactory to me, but you may find some that, that, that explain it, and I would love for you to share them with me if you do, because it's an interesting question. But when we get to verse 61, we see a shift. The following are those who came from Telmela, Telharsha, Shereb, Adon, and Emer but were unable to prove that their families and ancestors were Israelites. Deliah's descendants, Tobiah's descendants, and Nakoda's descendants, 642. And from the priests, the descendants of Hobiah, the descendants of Hakaz, and the descendants of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These searched for their names in the genealogical records, but they could not be found. So they were disqualified from the priesthood. Okay, so there's a few people in this list, and they can't find their genealogy. They can't really pin down and connect themselves uh, to the Israelite bloodline, and so they were disqualified from the priesthood. Now, don't, don't confuse that with they were kicked out of, of being part of Israel because they couldn't determine their bloodline. They couldn't be priests because they weren't real sure about their bloodline, uh, and so this matter was going to have to be investigated. And we see that in verse 65. The governor ordered them not to eat the most holy things until there was a priest who could consult the Urim and the Thummim. And so the priest would eat the most holy things. But these people, since their ancestry and genealogy couldn't for sure be traced, then they needed to hold off on these things until it could be determined if they, if they qualified to be priests or not. And then we see something mentioned that's, that's kind of odd because we don't see it much in Scripture. But he said, wait until the priest can consult the Urim and the Thummim. Now, what in the world is the Urim and the Thummim? Well, this is something that we see mentioned on a few occasions in Scripture. But we are never really given a good definition to explain to us how this Urim and Thummim works. Now, if you want to turn to Exodus, you can, or if you want to just listen, I'm going to go through a few different scriptures here because we don't come across Urim and Thummim too much in scripture. It's very seldom referenced. And so since we're coming to it tonight, we're going to spend a few minutes on it so we can get an idea of what's being talked about. But in Exodus 28, in Exodus 28 verse 30, we see this command that God gives that the priests are to, are to have this uh, Urim and Thummim placed into the breastplate of, of, the, of, the, of the priestly garments that they are to wear. And we see that in Exodus 28, verse 30. It says, Place the Urim and Thummim in the breastpiece breast for decisions, so that they will also be over Aaron's heart. Whenever he comes before the Lord, Aaron will continually carry the means of decisions for the Israelites over his heart before the Lord. So what are the Urim and the Thummim? Well, possibly some type of stone or something. But whatever they were, they were, they were used by the priests to make decisions, to guide the priests in some way, to reveal some, something that the Lord wanted the people to know in some way. And it's hard to explain because the Bible doesn't really explain how this occurs. 
we see references of this, for instance, in 1 Samuel chapter 28, verse 6. Uh, we see Saul, after, after, uh, after things have been going, going really bad and difficult, and Samuel, that's who I'm trying to think of, and Samuel had died, uh, Saul is, is kind of left, and things are not going good, and the Philistines are coming against him. And it says in 1 Samuel 28, verse 6, that he inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him in dreams, or the Urim, or by the prophets. And so this Urim and Thummim was something that the priests were supposed to seek when making decisions, trying to get an answer, trying to figure something out. Now, Saul, of course, was not a priest, but I don't know why he thought he was needed to seek the Urim. He was looking for an answer in any, any place he could get it, I guess, but, but he didn't find an answer. That's one example of, of that idea of seeking this Urim. The Thummim's not mentioned there, but the Urim is, of seeking this for guidance in some way and help with the situation. We see another mention of this in Numbers chapter 27, verses 18 through 21. This is as, as Moses is, is kind of handing the torch over to Joshua to take over uh, for him once Moses is gone. And in Numbers 27, verse 18, it says, The Lord replied to Moses, Take Joshua, son of Nun, a man who has the Spirit in him, and lay your hands on him. Have him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole community and commission him in their sight. Confer some of your authority on him, so that the entire Israelite community will obey him. He will stand before Eleazar, who will consult the Lord for him with the decision of the Urim. He and all the Israelites with him, even the entire community, will go out and come back in at his command. And so here we see another priest, Eleazar, during this experience. And what is he doing? He's going to consult the Urim. And so the Urim is, is supposed to guide the priest in some way, shape, or form. But what that looks like, it's really hard for us to know. And then one more possible reference we see where, where neither of these are mentioned by name occurs in 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 9 through 11. When David learned that Saul was plotting evil against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod. Then David said, Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard that Saul intends to come to Keilah and destroy the town because of me. Will the citizens of Keilah hand me over to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? The Lord, Lord God of Israel, please tell your servant. The Lord answered, he will come down. Now, it's not specifically mentioned, the Urim and the Thummim here, but it does mention Abiathar the priest, and he tells him to bring the ephod. Now, that would have been what the priest would have wore. And so it's possible that that reference to the ephod would have also been a reference to the Urim and Thummim, which would have been in the breastpiece of what the, what, the, what, the, what the priest would have worn. And so we see these references to the Urim and the Thummim in the Old Testament, uh, even in the passage that we're reading tonight in Nehemiah. And I don't know that there's a really good answer as to what those were. If those were some type of stone, uh, which, which could be the case, how could that reveal to the priest what God wanted them to know? Was it something that they, that they looked at? Did it, did it speak to them? Did it, did it show them something that they, could, that they could visibly see? I don't know the answer to that. Uh, we have to be careful when we, when we read things like this because... We don't want to fall into a trap that we seek a stone 
are, are, are something to, for the Lord to reveal to us. We, we have that the Lord has revealed to us through his word. Now, the first thing to note is the Urim and the Thummim were for the priest. Well, the priesthood does not exist anymore because Jesus is the high priest. So we don't need to seek such things uh, for God's guidance to us. Maybe the best example of what this, what this, may, be, what this may look like in our world uh, would be Joseph Smith and the Mormons because he claimed that he saw the things that God revealed to him by putting a stone in his hat, and he looked down into his hat, and he saw all these things that God revealed to him, and that's where Mormonism started. Now, perhaps he had the idea of the Urim and the Thummim in mind when he did that, and he, he, he claims that God was revealing something to him, maybe in the same way that God revealed things to the priest. But God does not work in that way anymore. Things are not revealed to us in that way anymore. Things are revealed to us in Jesus Christ and the Word of God. And so when it comes to the Urim and the Thummim, I don't have a good answer to you, but we come across it, and I wanted to at least acknowledge and explain to you a little bit what that looks like in the Old Testament, since we do see those words every once in a while come up. I wish, I wish we had a better definition in Scripture, but we simply do not. Uh, in verse 66, it says, The whole assembly numbered 42,360. Now, this number is exactly the same number that we see at the end of the list in Ezra. Now, what are the odds that if these lists cover two different groups of people, you know, 90 years apart, what are the odds that, that the numbers would remain exactly the same? Well, it's certainly possible. Uh, but again, that leaves questions in our mind. Is this two different lists? Is it the same list with maybe some errors and copying along the way? Well, we simply do not know, but that's a pretty big number. I mean, Nehemiah said there weren't many people there, but we might look at that number and say that's a lot of people. But maybe, maybe uh, compared to what the city could hold, maybe the city could hold many, 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 many more people than that. And so if the city could have held hundreds and hundreds of thousands, per perhaps, then 42,000 wouldn't fill it up. The people may have been uh, spaced out very far. Uh, but the city was ready. The walls were up. The temple was built. And so it was definitely time for the people to begin to uh, work their way back up into the city. And, and then we see some other numbers of things uh, uh, toward, the end of the, toward the end of the chapter there. And we won't, we won't go through all of those just for time's sake. Uh, but then uh, at the very end of the chapter, it kind of it preps us for for the next chapter that is to occur, and that's a that's a good one. And we see uh, we see Ezra mentioned as we as we get ready to move on into the next chapter. But there's a lot of good stuff in this in this passage we looked at tonight, and there's a lot of things that 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 I don't have a good answer to. I'm not going to tell you that there's not a good answer. I'll just tell you that I don't have a good answer to to some of those differences in numbers and and a good explanation of the Urim and the Thummim. And that's one of those things that maybe we say, well, I can't wait to get to heaven so I can ask God about that Urim and Thummim. But chances are when we get to heaven, we probably won't care about the Urim and the Thummim, so it won't make any difference. And so that may be something we'll just have to uh, be left to ponder as long as we're uh, in this world. But, but, you know, one of the things we see when we look at this passage is we see uh, that, that, that God has restored his people. And we see in the case of Nehemiah and those people, well, even though they had been restored to Jerusalem, the gates still had to be shut. Even though they had been restored to Jerusalem, things were kind of difficult because they weren't sure who would qualify to be a priest and who wasn't, whose, whose name was, was properly recorded and written in the genealogy. And in some way, I think that there's a connection here to, to, to a better future. 
Because we see in Nehemiah's case, the gate still had to be up. There were still enemies. It still was uncertain about the genealogy. But we see something better promised for us. All the way toward the end of Scripture, in Revelation 21, we are introduced to the new Jerusalem. That's going to be a great place. Now, in Nehemiah's day, they lived in the old Jerusalem. But the new Jerusalem is going to be a much better place. And in Revelation 21, verses 22 through 27, it says, I did not see a sanctuary in it, that is, in the new Jerusalem, because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its sanctuary. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, because God's glory illuminates it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk in its lights, and the kings and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Each day its gates will never close because it will never be night there. Now, that's a good comparison to what we see in the Jerusalem of Nehemiah's day. They had to close the gates at night. Why? Because that's when the enemy comes in. That's when you're in danger at night. But in the new Jerusalem, when we who put our faith in Jesus Christ are there with the Lord, there will be no need to close the gates. Why? Because there will be no, there will be no night. There will be no enemy. There will be no evil attacks. We will be safe. Gates are closed for safety. But here the gates never have to be closed. Why? Because there's nothing there that can harm us. And so in Nehemiah's day, things were still tough. But when the new Jerusalem comes, when we are in the new Jerusalem, there will be no more enemy to come because the enemy, Satan, will have been destroyed once and for all. Each day its gates will never close because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing profane will ever enter it. No one who does what is vile or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, in the case of Nehemiah, some of the people, there was no record as to were they really Israelites? Did they really have the right bloodline? But there is a record of those who were God's children. And it's not based on our blood. It's based on the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's the Lamb's book of life. And so who will be in the New Jerusalem? Everybody whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Everybody who's put their faith in Jesus Christ are covered by the blood of Christ. So we will have the right blood. We will be God's children, and we will be in a Jerusalem that is always safe, and we will be God's people. And that's going to be a good day. And so we, we, we kind of get a glimpse of, of, of that in some sense when we read things like Nehemiah, that they are restored to Jerusalem. But there's a better Jerusalem that awaits us. And hopefully, all of our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, in Nehemiah's case, these people couldn't serve as priests because their genealogy could not be traced. Their bloodline could not be traced. But what we see in the New Testament is that all who put their faith in Jesus Christ, Peter refers to us as a royal priesthood. We are a royal priesthood. Because of the blood, not our blood, not who our ancestors were, but because of the blood of Christ. And so we will be a royal priesthood in that new Jerusalem. We will be children of God, and we will be in a place that we will be protected forever and ever. So what about us? What about those people of Nehemiah's day when they got? I wonder what they were thinking when they said, man, I hope, I hope my name is found in the genealogy. I hope my ancestry checks out. I hope I have the right blood. But what about us? What about us when we stand before the Lord and the Lord looks at the Lamb's book of life? Will our name be in there? 
Will we be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ? Well, I hope so, because that's the only day that we, only way that we are considered the royal priesthood, the children of God, is if our name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And if it is, we one day will go into that new Jerusalem, and it will be a good day, far better than the old Jerusalem that Nehemiah and Zerubbabel and all those others built a wall in the temple for, because we are a temple of God. God dwells in us. And we will be with him one day if we put our faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you. Thank you for a good word. Some of these things are tough, dear Lord. Help us not to get, get too caught up with these numbers that are different. Help us to study them and understand them as best we can. But God, your word is true and your, your word is good and it is trustworthy. So even if we don't have answers as to why some of these things don't add up, well, let us not lose heart because we do know that your, your son Jesus is the Savior of the world. That's clear. There's no contradictory, there's, no, there's no, no differences there. God, your word lines up time and time again to tell us the truth of Jesus Christ. So I pray, God, that you would help us to put our faith in it, that we would be part of that royal priesthood that Peter talks about. God, that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And God, one day we will be in that new Jerusalem where we will have no worries and no fears and everything will be okay. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.